You are listening to Bold Is, a ministry podcast training women how to handle the Word of God. Buckle up, sis. It's about to get real. Here's your host, Megan Rawlings. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Boldest Podcast. Today, I have Michael Bird with me, and I'm so excited for you guys to meet him. Michael, why don't you kind of give us a little bit of an introduction to who you are? What, what are you about? Okay, well, I'm, uh, I'm Mike Bird. I live in Melbourne, Australia, where the kangaroo roams free and the Vegemite is always fresh. And I teach uh, theology and Bible at Ridley College, which is an Anglican college in Australia. And I'm pretty much excited about the Bible, um, teaching basic Christian beliefs and, and forming people for ministry and the Christian life. Excellent. And, and you're a writer. You've written a yes. lot. Yeah, I have, I, have, I have written a fair bit. And as my wife says, I'm better in uh, print than person. But before we get into that, um, I have a lot of patriots who listen to us, and I know that you served in the military, correct? I certainly did. I certainly Not for did. America, but for your country, right? For one of the allies. For one <laughs> of the allies. Yeah, can you just give us a glimpse into what that looks like in another country? Um, okay, well, I, I joined the Army when I was 17, and uh, to be perfectly honest, when I joined the Army, I, I weighed like about 46 kilos which is like 90 pounds. So I had the body wow. of a, I had the body of a scrawny chicken. Um, or Spider-Man. Yeah, or Spider-Man, yes. Uh, <laughs> buffed up pretty quickly, uh, became a paratrooper, then worked in military intelligence and then finished up as a chaplain's assistant. Uh, I never deployed on serious operations. I was in the army back in the 90s before we had a whole bunch of... Um, other things going around the world in East Timor and Afghanistan and Iraq. So I, I kind of um, uh, just missed that boat uh, in many ways. And yeah, I mean, I actually came to faith when I was in the army. You know, I got invited to church for the first time and, you know, went along and heard the good news of Jesus and, and things became different. And it was then I thought more about going into Christian ministry and went to seminary. And at seminary, it turned out I'm much better teaching people or, or, or doing stuff than some of the other pastoral tasks. Um, empathy is not my strong point. Um, uh, most of my pastoral counseling to 19-year-old uh, man-childs is suck it up princess, um, which is not the best pastoral quality, but it is something that 19-year-old boys frequently need to hear. So that's, that's kind of like my backstory from army into ministry. No, that's fantastic. Um, I know that you have recently put out a book um, the New Testament in its world. I actually got this for my birthday. This was my birthday present this year. Wow, that is awesome. <laughs> yeah, I was so excited. Um, and when it every, came in- every, every woman should get this for her birthday. That's exactly right. Who needs diamonds when you can have books, right? Um, I know. And then um, I got it for my birthday and I work at a university and all of the professors were jealous and they were like, can we borrow it? And I'm like, no, go buy your own book. <laughs> Um, and then my husband stole it and read it all in a matter of a week, one week, read it wow. all. Yeah. So I had wow. to wait. It was my birthday present and I had to wait to read it. Yeah. I mean, cause that's a hefty piece. Um, my, my boss, uh, Brian Rosner said, um, it's, it's a hard book to put down, but even harder to pick up. No. Um, <laughs> 
my husband's very determined man. He's real smart too. So, but he read it in a week and he was like, this is good. You should use it. And I'm like, well, it's, yeah. that was the intention. That's why I requested that for my birthday. <laughs> oh, terrific. And then you also um, have Evangelical Theology, the second edition's out now. Yeah, it's just about out. It'll be um, out freshly in October. Tell us about those. Okay, let's start with <laughs> the New Testament in its world. Um, I, yes. I'm, a little, I'm a little bit of a, an anti-right fanboy. Um, <laughs> uh, um, uh, anti-right, if you don't know, is, is a British biblical scholar who I think is very good on Jesus and Paul. I mean, there's a few things here and there we can, we can always disagree on things, but you know, he's written a, probably the best book on the resurrection, I think, perhaps in the history of the Christian church which is uh, maybe a little bit of an overstatement, but uh, I think it's true. He, and he's very engaging. He's got this really cool British accent and booming voice as well. And he is one of the uh, major players in biblical studies. So, I mean, I was talking to an editor one day and they said, do you have any ideas for a book? And I said, well, I've got several things on my plate, but what you should do is get someone to work with Tom Wright and try to take his lifetime's work, condense it down uh, into an introduction for basic students. And the, uh, the editor, it was um, uh, Philip Law, his, his kind of eyes lit up and said, wow, as if he'd just been shown the secrets to the, you know, the, the origins of the universe. He said, that's a great idea, Mikey. Hey, why don't you do it with Tom? I said, well, you know, I've, I've met Tom a few times. I mean, you know, we kind of get on, but yeah, he may have his own little acolyte to do it. And they, and they spoke to Tom and Tom said, oh yeah, that Mike Bird's not bad for an Australian. Um, and so we, we gradually started working together on it. It was mostly me working through the Ritonian corpus um, and his various books over some, you know, uh, 40 years of, of study and uh, using the material there. It, it, but it's not just a cut and paste. Uh, a lot of the work has been freshly updated, in some cases rewritten. I mean, I wrote a whole bunch of stuff specifically for this. Tom wrote a whole bunch of new stuff specifically like this. Um, Zondervan and SPCK invested a whole bunch of uh, materials in the pictures. I mean, this is, it's almost a picture book. It's got so many pictures of things in it and it's full of charts and graphs. And we've tried everything we can to make it usable, accessible and informative. And it's, it's doing pretty well and it's, it's got a DVD as well. And they've even invented this thing called an enhanced textbook. Have you heard of these? No. Now this is, imagine like an, an e-book, like a Kindle that has inside it videos and kind of like interactive like polls and things you can do it's like it's like it's like an interactive ebook wow um, so this is like next generation level you know kindle sort of stuff and uh so that, that they put into that format as well and uh, so far the feedback's been been pretty good i'm i'm, pr I'm very happy with it and it, it's um it, it's it's a uh, well, my students tend to like it, but then again, I, I kind of force them to read it and then they know I grade their papers. So maybe they're biased. So that's, that's the story of uh, that book. No, um, and it's super helpful too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, well, that's what we hopefully we want to be. Um, and, you know, like the average chapter will start off with a brief summary, say looking at Hebrews, you know, like why should you be interested in Hebrews? So we kind of kick off trying to um, arouse people's interest in the subject. Yeah, and then we work through some of the nitty-gritty issues like authorship, place, but we also provide a short commentary on each book. And at the end, we ask the question, at the end of each chapter, we say, well, so what? How's this going to uh, change the way you eat your cornflakes tomorrow morning? And we talk about some of the immediate applications you can take away from this book. So hopefully that makes something that's useful and informative 
for you know readers whether you're in seminary or you've never been to seminary you just want to know more about the bible and that's something that i truly appreciated about this book and i know my audience is going to love is you don't have to be a scholar to be able to read it um i'm sure you wrote it with certain audience in mind but i love that you use terminology that pretty much anyone with the basic understanding of christianese would be able to pick up and read yeah Exactly. That's what you want to do. I mean, I'm thinking of someone who's either, you know, maybe you know, serious about their adult Sunday school or their you know, adult Bible study, or, or is maybe considering like being a first year seminary student who, or who wants to go along to college and wants to get away from something that's just, you know, the devotional sort of stuff into some real um, thick, fulsome descriptions of the New Testament in its, in its ancient context. Uh, that, that's what we're about in this volume and, and um, working with Tom, I, I think we've executed something pretty good. Yeah, uh, we like to call that, it's a meat and potatoes kind of book. Ah, yep, yep. Well, that's, that's what we're definitely aspiring for. Good, no, and I, I cannot recommend it enough, guys. Um, we have a link in the blog post that is connected to this interview, so be sure to go check that out. There's a direct link on where you can purchase this book. If you don't, you're missing out. It's your loss. Now, tell us a little bit about your evangelical theology. Okay, this book is one that's very dear to me. The first edition came out in 2013. Now, the idea behind this book is when I started teaching theology, I wanted to do it from a overtly and explicitly, from a nakedly evangelical perspective. If you don't know the word evangel, uh, is, uh, is the word for gospel. So I wanted a real gospel-focused um, systematic theology, but I looked far and wide, and there were some very good systematic theologians who were evangelical. There were some very good systematic theology books that had a kind of evangelical theme or vibe. Uh, but I wanted to do something that was that I thought would be really um, rooted in the gospel, and then I, then it became not just the book I wanted to find; it became the book I wanted to write. So the idea was to write a systematic theology that made the gospel the center, boundary, and integrating point for the entire theological project. So the idea is when you think about the doctrine of the church, you know, how, what, what does it mean to look at the church through the lens of the gospel? What does the, the gospel tell us about God? Because ultimately the God we worship is the God of the gospel. Uh, the church is the community of the gospelized. Um, the person and work of Christ. That's all about the, uh, the subject and the story of uh, the gospel. You know, and all, all the areas of theology, I, I argue, are, are umbilically connected to what the gospel teaches us and the implications that it sets out. I mean, you can even say ethics is about living a life worthy of the gospel. So I wanted to create a, a book that had a, a very strong evangelical focus and uh, that, that, that got published in 2013, and it's, and it's done fairly well. So that, that's what I was trying to do uh, uh, in, in that book. And then I thought it was time for a second edition. Uh, I, look, I looked at the footnotes, and they were fairly, fairly white, male, and Calvinistic. Now, there's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with being a white, male um, Calvinist, but I thought, you know, I really should look a little bit wider. So I, I, uh, I want to incorporate more, more women theologians who I hadn't completely neglected, but I think it'd be good to get some more women's voices in there. Uh, learning a lot more from theologians of the global south. Uh, and because I'm in Australia, I have a sort of more natural affinity 
geographically with Asian theologians. So you know, I was you know, very keen to read and interact with a lot of Asian Christian theologians. And I, I learned a lot from that. Who would you recommend want, people check out in that? In that uh, or company? number one, number one, I would say would be Simon Chan. Um, his book, Grassroots Asian Theology, I think is terrific. It's it's, it's a very short book, uh, and it's 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 about you know, you know, it's 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 about what, you know, what does the average Christian in Asia, um, you know, believe about uh, God, faith. And you know, and and what's the what's the what's the theology that they have, and how is that over against some of the more elites who can often be trained in Western contexts, and that type of a thing. So yeah, that, that's that's one good book. Uh, in America, um, Asian American scholar Amos Young, anything by him is particularly good. I also know the Langham um, Trust has recently published a book on Asian Christian theology. It's, it's, I can't remember the editors, sadly. But that's a terrific book about, that's every chapter is written by a, a leading Asian theologian. And, and that, is, that is a very good volume as well. So yeah, I tried to do that, looked at a few African theologians and a few from South America. Uh, a few areas I wanted to uh, expand, a few things I needed to update, some discussions on the Trinity I like some areas that need a lot of concern now is what do you do with like multi-site churches? Uh, because, you know, we don't really have that much of a category for them um, in the New Testament, but how is technology changing our doctrine of the church? That type of a thing. Um, and one thing I, I love telling some of my, um, my Baptist students who belong to multi-site churches is that if you've got a senior pastor with a bunch of like sites around a city or around the country, I say, effectively, you, you, what you've got is not so much a church, it's more of a diocese. So you've actually got a more almost Catholic type of structure, the way your church is run with a certain type of hierarchy, which my uh, Baptist students who pro normally pride themselves on the independence of the local congregation um, do kind of grind their teeth a little bit and have to, um, and have to accept my point on that. Uh, so it's kind of like st stuff like that. And I'm, I'm also... Um, I'm also a, a failed comedian. Before I before I was in the uh, you know acad academy and before I was in the army, I, I wanted to be a lyricist, writing shows for uh, musicals for Broadway. So uh, I do have a little bit of a, a, a comedic strip that comes out every now and then. And uh, so when I describe the Council of Nicaea uh, in in the evangelical theology, I do it in the form of a rap battle. Uh, I don't know whether you're familiar with the musical Hamilton. No, I've never heard of it. No, it's a joke. Uh, I figured, I figured it's on Disney Plus now. Everyone should be watching it. Yep. So that one, that one worked for them. So yeah, I do the Council of Nicaea, which is where they were debating, you know, in what sense is Jesus God at this council? So I do that as a rap battle, kind of similar to the cabinet battle that they have in uh, Hamilton. Can so you show us a little bit of it? Ah, oh, gosh, give me, give me a, give me a second. Give me a second. Um, oh, I'm so excited. Okay, see if I can find... Uh, oh, actually, actually, I can even point you to a YouTube clip um, where, so, where a... Um, let me think that. A, uh, I put this online and then an um, Anglican minister in Sydney then recorded this on YouTube. Uh, so if you've got a second, I'll... Yeah. I can see. I can send you uh, the link. 
Let's, let's just take one second. Awesome. I'm excited. I'm going to put it in right here so that way they can That's hear good. it. It's, uh, it's done by a wonderful Anglican minister called um, Andrew Court. Okay. Um, uh, so, yeah, so that's, that's pretty good. So if you could make Andrew Court or the Reverend Andrew Court famous uh, in the um, <laughs> in the women's Bible study scene in America, I'm that's sure. That's right, ladies. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure Andrew Court would really appreciate that. And uh, n knowing knowing that he may be a small fish in Sydney, but in the um, in the uh, women's Bible study circuit in America, he's kind of a big deal now. Listen up ladies, gents and squires, I'm Nicholas from the Sea of Myra. Most of you know me as Jolly Santa Claus, though my main claim to fame is maiming foes in Christology Wars. A cat named Darius said the son was the father's inferior. He was backed by dudes like Eusebius of Nicomedia. But I repose Arius was deposed down in Alexandria by none other than the man himself, Bishop Alexander. This started a fight that lacked decorum and candor Not much fellowship but man a whole lot of slander Constantine called the council in Nicaea The idea was for the council to be kinda like a panacea Arius never showed, hey man I don't blame him If I met the dude I'd only wanna shame him If Arius arrived he wouldn't survive I'd verbally attack him Cause I'm a saint with no self-restraint So I'd probably slap him Forgive me if I begin to rave and prattle But you need to hear that Nicaea was an epic rap battle The encounter was ten times precarious Till Arius got on by young Athanasius I'll show you what happened back then at Nicaea First up, you see the us, I'm Nicomedia the creed that God is one. God is the Father and the Father has a Son. But the Son does not share in the Father's might. The Son is something of a lesser light. The Son is divine but the Father is greater. The Son was made, the Father's his maker. You know the truth brothers, you know the whole lot. As Arius says there was a time when the Son was not. But Bishop Alexander down on the mouth of the Nile, everything he says is erroneous and vile. He thinks the Father and the Son, they're just the same. It's like one God with two different names. Alexander leads us on a path towards unholy schism. He preaches the heresy called modalism. The errors of his ways are many and fraught, cause he denies the time when the Son was naught. Alexander, I will make you pay for your slander. I'm gonna gut you, you sly old salamander. I'll expose you, depose you, impose on your style. I got a vision of my mission to put you in exile. I'm gonna see you in chains and then I'll lock it, cause while you were scheming, I got Constantine in my pocket. I'm in a dogfight with UCBS of Nicomedia It's like scuffing with a guy that's a walking encyclopedia I can't take him on, I can't do it alone Come on people, throw this poor doggy a bow Excuse me sir, I couldn't help but over here 
I have some suggestions and a couple of ideas. Sorry, son. You see, I'm a very busy man. But boss, I believe that I can lend you a hand. Who are you, kid? Exactly who is speaking? My name is Athanasius, and I'm your deacon. All right, dude, whatever. You got a minute of my time. I can prove that the sun is totes divine. <laughs> that, that's easy, dude. Like, you, you gotta go farther. You need to prove that the sun is divine in the same way as the father. I have arguments that are totally sound. You CBS cannot confound. Get comfy, bish, while I break it down. Athanasius has come to town. Brothers and bishops, I beseech ya. If the sun was created, then he's merely a creature. And one creature cannot redeem another. Whether he's an angel, a saint, or even the Holy Mother. Only God can be our saviour. He saves by grace, not by our behaviour. The case is simple, not strange or odd. The Son fully saves, cause the Son's fully God. I spoke to some homeboys out from the West. They've got a formula of great interest. They have a bro who was the total package. Tertullian's terms are full of advantage. That North African Latin lawyer was one badass heresy destroyer. The brother was lit, he really knew it, and he had a great way to put it. He said, God is three persons equal in one substance, so Jesus is divine in the Father's abundance. The dude was legit, he called a spade a spade. He said, the son's begotten, so he never got made. To put that speak into Greek for us, it means father and son are homoousios. Eusebius is daft, that chum's a total cullion. He's never even heard of our man, Tertullian. I've heard his views, and frankly they're hilarious. He's nothing but a shill for that dog Arius. So take it to the bank, father and son are equal. But this argument of mine, you see, it's got a sequel. You see, Arius and Eusebius think they're really hip, but if they're right, then they pervert our worship. If the sun was created, we're worshipping a creature. In the history of idolatry, that's like a, the main feature. If doxology was money, Arius is broke. By following Arius, we make our worship a joke. So to sum it all up, my argument is thus. Father, Son, Homoousios. Dang, boy, you just dropped some serious knowledge. You must be a graduate of Moore Theological College. Now, I don't understand all this theological jargon, but I like what you're selling, because it makes a good bargain. But boss man, please, don't get blindsided. The word homoousios will leave us hopelessly divided. We need to follow the word pictures of scripture. You need to exile Alex and issue some strictures to bolster the power of your imperial patriarchy. You must insist that God's essence is a hierarchy. Sebi, my dear, let me be clear. I have no remit to try and interfere. I don't care how the sun is deified. I just want my church completely unified. I don't want to slay the church's holy cow. The homoousius formula will do us for now. They call me bull neck. I made the empire strong. And I'm afraid that from now on, you're on the side of wrong. <laughs>
Remember, Sebi, I'm Constantine the Great, not Constantine for you to manipulate. So if you have some beef, I suggest you sock it. Cause Sebi, nobody's got me in their pocket. Yes! Athanasius, my man, for goodness sakin! You really stepped up! You saved our bacon! But the war ain't over, it will go full circle. So I'm gonna elevate you to the purple. When I was trapped, poof, boy, you freed me. And that's why, Athanasius, I want you to succeed me. So when it comes to the Council of Nicaea, hopefully this gives you a bit of an idea. Forget the rumours, forget Dan Brown. Now you know what really went down. So that's one thing we did, um, that I did in this, and I, uh, I do a few periodic bits of humor. I, I call it, I call it comic belief. These short sections I kind of put in, like you know, how many Calvinists does it take to change a light bulb, or something like that. Uh, uh, but it's, well, what's but the punchline? Because I kind of need to hear it. Uh, I think it just—I don't actually remember. I think it's something you may have been may have been ordained to be dull and lightless before the foundation of the earth, or <laughs> something like something like that. Um, yeah. Well, and here's the problem with Cal for some people, they think Calvinism is the fear that somewhere, somehow, someone is smiling. Um, some people <laughs> think that's what Calvinism is. The way I the way I explain the way I explain Calvinism and yeah I've I've certain Calvinistic sympathies I say Calvinism is this look people suck people suck in their sins they are suckiness unto death and the God who is rich in mercy saves them before they reached out to Him He took the initiative to save them that is the sum of my Calvinism everything else is commentary. Okay, so that that's that's how I explain. Now, some Calvin scholars that that may make their face go red with rage, and they want a few more details thrown in. But that's that's kind of how I sell my Calvinism. Uh, I got kicked out of a reformed group because I I'm in all the groups. I'm interested. I love hearing everyone's theology. I'm so open-minded. I can be I can beat you on that one. I got named as a heretic in a document produced by the OPC. No, you did not. I got, I got, I think I got like, you know, the, the following people are hereby damned for all eternity or something like that. And they gave a list and I, I made the list. I made the list. At least, are they making stuff up for you though? You might be a heretic, but are they making oh, well, it up? I cop, I cop it on both sides. I get called either kind of a raving, progressive, liberal, arch heretic who was, you know, birthed in the armpits of Satan. Uh, all the way through to the other side to crazy radical fundamentalist um, who, be who, who believes that a race of redhead supermen will one day rise to rule the world. And in case you don't know, I, I actually do have red hair. To be perfectly honest, I'm kind of sympathetic to that last one. I think the idea of a race of redhead supermen ruling the world uh, could work. Me, 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 Nicole Kidman, and that guy from Miami CSI. You know, the redhead guy keeps taking the glasses on and off. <laughs> Yeah. I think the three of us could form a really good triumvirate. We put the world to rights. Okay, I'm going to tell you a secret. It's not a secret because it's on the podcast. 
my husband always says, Megan, this can't, well, Nicole Kidman is my spirit animal. Okay. And I say that and my husband's like, she's a human. She can't be your spirit animal, but well, she's like my one person. If I met her, I could die a happy woman. Okay. I just, I think she's like the coolest cause she's so classy and she's just so put together, but she still like lives on a farm. I just, I don't know. I really admire her. Yeah. Well, she's, she's very popular down here, obviously. Um, oh uh, yeah. So yeah, well, we love her. She's our, you know, one of our best actresses we know we've ever produced. So, okay, Nicole Kids was your spirit animal. I thought you were going to say, actually, I'm secretly a redhead, but I didn't want anyone to know about it. That's, no, uh, if I, I was a redhead, you... you would know. My, my, I have a stepson, and he is, like, fiery red. Like, oh, wow. red, red. And it's beautiful. Okay. He has the most beautiful hair. My hair used to be kind of like red, red, fire engine red. Uh, now it's got this strange kind of salty cream color that's being infused through it. Um, yeah, but there we go. There we go. It works. It works. Awesome. Now, I'm excited. Um, one of the things that I stole from a professor who, who teaches me Greek is why are people so fascinated about what man says about God, and that's the theology part, when they don't understand what God says about God, and that's the Bible part. And I think there is a tendency to separate the two. And I've seen in your work uh, uh, an effort to kind of combine the two more. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, my main background is uh, New Testament studies. You know, I've got some wide-ranging interests all the way through to, you know, the church, church history, Septuagint, um, and, and even into systematic theology. But I think the best theologies, and this is terms like a, a systematic theology that lays out what the Christian beliefs are and what are the connections between them. The best systematic theologies are the ones that are well and truly based on and infused with good biblical theology. You can get some uh, theology books uh, that have a, a lot of ideas uh, about God and you know, they're, they're very well read in, in, in philosophy and literature and that type of thing, but they only seem to be tangentially interested in the Bible. Uh, and the problem with that is that it's not allowing God's self-revelation in Scripture to be the main driving force. Whereas in good systematic theology, the Bible is what we call the norming norm. So it's the main normative authority which shapes uh, our belief, our language, and how we construct the whole tapestry or we you know, put together the tapestry of Christian belief. So that, that's, one, that's, that's one side of it. But th th there is another side too. You can get theology that's just a whole bunch of proof texting. Yes. And you, and you end up, well, I've got my little pile of proof texts. I've got a few explanations for these ones over here and you know for why they don't work and you're really just doing theology with a concordance and one thing i also point out to students you can't do theology if it's just the view of like my esv and me okay uh uh, because you you you've, you have you have to understand that to to jump from the text in the ancient world, whether that's eighth century Isaiah or first century Luke, there is a huge cultural and historical chasm there that you have to be aware of. And if you're not aware of that chasm, okay, if you're not aware of how of how texts create uh, meaning, uh, if you're not aware of like what what church history has done in between. Uh, you can get a lot of problems. And that, that is why I think a, a good systematic theologian uh, or systematic theologian is not just a harmonizing of the Bible. 
it's also looking at, well, how, how do texts create meaning and generate doctrines that are prescriptive? Um, how, what, what are some of the things in church history we can read upon uh, that will help us to understand? Because, Megan, we live in an age where I think there is, there is uh, never more than ever a suspicion of everything in the past. I don't, have, you, have you seen that thing, on, like that meme, like, OK, Boomer, uh, that's, that's done around, yes. you know, OK, Boomer? Okay, we seem to have this generation of kids now, and I get this in my students who felt like everyone who came before me was either dumb or evil. Okay, so yeah. every generation before mine is dumb or evil, and anything that's traditional or old is bad. We need the latest. We need the latest iPhone, and to know what are the latest um, things we need to cancel or something along those, something along those lines. Um, the, the way I, I explain uh, things to my students is, look, tradition is important. Let me explain tradition to you. Tradition is finding out which mushrooms are poisonous without having to learn the hard way. Okay? <laughs> so, when, so when your nana says, don't be eating that, um, you don't turn around and say, okay, boomer, and then take a big you know, um, chunk uh, out of the mushroom you found in the backyard. Because if you do that, you're going to end up getting your stomach pumped in hospital. You know, listen to your nana... Or your, or, or your grandpa. Um, you know, tradition is what the church has learned from reading scripture. Now, we should read tradition critically because I think some of the involving traditions have not been based on scripture and they haven't been helpful, but tradition is largely a tool to help us read scripture. So that's when we construct our systematic theology. We listen, obviously, to the Bible. Uh, we also... Um, want to go through church history and find out what are the resources and tips and helps maybe even a little bit of you know philosophy where it's where it's useful as well and use the the, the, the complete suite of resources available to have an integrated way of how we construct um you know what we should believe in our own context in our own day Absolutely. I think that's a really good explanation because I think you're right. There is a tendency. I mean, I'm a millennial and there is a tendency to, um, you don't know what you're talking about because we live in a new age where I have technology at my fingertips and you didn't, therefore I know more than you. Um, and I think it's important to realize, okay, but they have been there and done that. And so we, we do need to take a step back and let them teach us. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, if you think you've got nothing, you, you can learn far more from church history than you can from Wikipedia. Um, before you leave, I do have one more question. Why, I should have asked this before and I, it escaped my mind. Why is theology important for people? Why is it important to know your theology? Obviously, we can make it an idol, but it still is a vital oh, part of being a Christian. It's, it's very important because you, you need to do Christian faith with a comprehensive and coherent um, way of approaching problems, you know. I mean, there, there are certain things that are pretty clear. For example, when faced with the temptation of adultery, you don't commit adultery because there's a whole stack of things in the Bible that say, don't commit adultery. Right. Uh, but but, ha- but how do you be, how do you shine like stars? How do you demonstrate the conformity to the pattern of Christ um, in somewhere like, you know, suburban Ohio? or somewhere like Houston. How, how, do you, how do you do that kind of stuff? Okay, now, it, it, so, you, so you need to have a somewhat more refined answer. And you also need to give an, to answer the issues, the problems, the questions that your culture and your context presents to you in a compelling way. Now, if someone said to you, you know, what must I do to be saved? 
you wouldn't say to them, well, you know, Moses says this, Isaiah says that, Matthew says this, meh, pick the one you like and run with that. I mean, you, you want to give an answer that reflects the totality of the Christian witness and is also going to make sense to the person you're talking to, given their language, their culture, their their point of reference. So theology enables you to do that, enables you to unify the biblical witness, you know, and take into account various things and then relate it to people and the questions and issues that they're facing. And that is necessary. That's why you, you can't just have, well, I've got the Bible. Um, you have to say, well, what does the Bible say about, you know, um, God? What does the Bible say um, about, I don't know, things like healthcare, which I'm sure will be a big issue at your, you know, your next election. You know, you, you've got to relate it to the world outside the Bible. And once you're doing that, you really do need theology. No, you're, you're exactly right. I am super excited about people getting to know you. Where can they find you at on the internet? On uh, the they interwebs? Uh, they can find me on Twitter, at uh, mbird12. I also have a blog called um, Evangelion, and you so say normally around there somewhere, or um, I don't know any any anywhere where where um, angry reform people are denouncing heretics, you'll probably find my name there as well, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so they're, 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 they're probably the two main places you can you can find me. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much for um, coming on the podcast. Um, at the end of every podcast, I ask our guests to pray us out. Would you care to do that? I will certainly do that. Great. Our Heavenly Lord, we thank you for this day and the good things that you give us. We thank you for your mercies, your blessings. And wherever we are right now, Lord, in this pandemic-stricken world, we pray you will give us the strength to face a new day and to show forth how the light of Christ shines in our heart and everything that we do in labor and in leisure, we would give glory to God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.